All right, morning, everybody. How are you? Good? Okay. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor of the church that you are currently sitting in. Uh, before we get into our message, uh, I want to unveil uh, something exciting this morning. You know, when I started this church uh, 14 years ago now, there were a number of tasks that I had to accomplish in the first couple of months. And one of them uh, was creating a logo for this brand new church. I was starting Renovation Church, and I am not artistic at all. And we had about 20 people in our church in those days. And so I just started reaching out to anyone that I knew that was halfway artistic and said, would you submit a logo? Um, we'll pay you 150 bucks, because that's all we had, really. And that's, I know that's a, offen- offensive to artists and designers, but it's what we had. It was for a good cause, okay? Well, eventually, I ended up getting this logo uh, submission um, from a random guy that I met once at a pastor's conference. Um, we paid him 150 bucks, and it's been our logo for the last... 14 years. I feel like that's a good investment financially. Uh, so if you could just affirm me on that after, uh, that would be good for my heart. Okay. Um, but times change, right? And design changes and art changes. How, how you dress today is probably not like how you dressed in 2009. Uh, how you decorate your home today is probably not how you would decorate it in 2009. That doesn't mean that you're a different person. Right? And a different logo uh, doesn't mean that we are a different church. Uh, we're not, but we've been kind of working uh, behind the scenes the last year or so to update our logo for the times in which we now do ministry. And so uh, without further ado, uh, here is the new logo of Renovation Church. Um, it's kind of cool. Um, we like it. Some really like it. Um, no, we like it because, uh, you know, I feel like our old logo had kind of a soft, rounded, uh, playful look where this has straight lines. It's strong look, I feel like, is a much better match for our building, uh, our design that we currently do. It also, it keeps the R. Um, we also kept arrows in the logo for renovation, for change, but now we're pointed upwards uh, towards, towards the Lord. Uh, here you can get a sense of kind of what it'll look like in different contexts. Um, we're going to be rolling these things out all over the next uh, seven days uh, or so. So we're grateful for the old. We really truly are, but we're, we're excited for the new as well. Okay, uh, we're going to get into uh, today's message, um, and we're going to see today in our passage, kind of a, similarly to a last week, that Paul, the author of Ephesians, is going to give a lot of instructions on what holy Christian living actually looks like. And much of how we're instructed to live is quite countercultural to how many people around us live. And to me, that raises an important question. In fact, it's actually the title of today's message, and that is this. Why do Christians live so differently? Why do we live differently? When it comes to sex or money or how we treat other people, why do we live so differently than the people around us? We're not afraid to ask the why question here, and so we're going to do that this morning. So I want everybody to grab a Bible, whether you brought your own. Uh, if you're using a Bible here, there should be one at your chair. Uh, we are going to be on page 800 right on the dot this morning. And you know, we, we, I want to ask tough questions of the Bible in part because I want to know the motivation. I want to know the why behind it because I just think that's really helpful. It's kind of like if you have little kids or you will have someday or maybe you did long ago, you know, if you're teaching little kids to brush your teeth, you don't just want to say, hey, you need to brush your teeth twice a day, no questions asked, right? Like, no, what are you going to do? You're going to, they might not fully understand it, but you're going to begin to explain to them the, the risks of not brushing their teeth, right? Uh, both socially and hygienically. Um, and, and the the, the pros of brushing your teeth. And we want to do the same thing here. We want to understand why God asks us to live so 
differently. So let's take a look. You ready? Okay, so we're on chapter five now of Ephesians. So all you need to find on page 800 is that big number five, and we're going to start right there. Okay. Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, we're actually going to stop right there already, because we already got a reason on why we should live differently, and that's this. Number one, we live differently because we are God's dearly loved children. We make different choices when it comes to sex, when it comes to money, when it comes to how we talk, not because we're trying to earn God's approval, or not because, well, God says so, and we have to do what he says. No, we live differently because we're his kids, right? If a child loves and adores their earthly father, what will they do? They'll imitate him. You know, there was a kid in my elementary school who he had, a, he had a really kind father, but his dad was also a really successful businessman. And I would say, I was maybe like once a month, this third grader would come to school just dressed in a to- total full-out suit, eight or nine years old, right? And he just didn't care that he looked differently than everyone else because he loved his dad. And he just wanted to be just like his Dad, if children have a good father, they'll naturally want to imitate him. And you, my friend, you have a wonderful heavenly father who has so much wisdom, and he loves you so much. In fact, he poured his life out for you. And so, as Paul says, as dearly loved children, we want to imitate him. That's why. It's not just do, do, do. It's why we want to imitate and live differently as Christians. Okay, but what does that look like? Paul's going to get into some specifics now in verse 3. So let's take a look. He says, But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And so Paul urges us here to avoid a number of different sins, which we're going to get to in just a few minutes here. But again, he actually gives us another reason why we avoid them, why we live so differently. And this is reason number two. It's this. Because sin is improper for God's holy people. It's improper. And as we always do, I, th- I think we need to look carefully at the words here, right? So Paul, if you study the text, Paul isn't saying, hey, if you want to be one of God's people, one of his holy people, if you want to be acceptable to God, then you're going to need to avoid these sins. That's not what he says. He says, no, since you already are one of God's holy people, these things, living in sin like this, is improper. It doesn't make sense. It's out of place, verse 4 says, for God's people. Believers, okay, think of it this way. Think about what you have in Christ. Right? Even though you rightfully deserved death and punishment, God sent his son Jesus for you. And then through your faith, even though you sinned against God millions of times, He was willing to wash away, wipe away all of those sins. And then he said, not only will I do that, I love you so much, I'm going to come and make my home in you, and I'm going to walk with you and love you, give you wisdom along the way. And then, 
On top of that, I'm going to offer you eternal life so forever you can come and live with me in heaven where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow. I feel like that's a lot. Okay? And so the idea that as Christians we would accept that amazing gift, right? And then set it aside so we could go chase after the temporary highs of sex and cash. Paul says, is just improper. It's, it's unfitting. It's, it's out of place. It's living in a way that doesn't truly grasp what God has done for you. Does that make sense? Right, this is the why underneath this. And those six things that Paul tells us to avoid, you could really group them into three major categories. And we, we see these three categories crop up a lot in the New Testament. And I would call them this. He says that we need to avoid greed, sinful speech, and sexual immorality. So let's talk about these because they come up quite often in the Bible. Now, greed is improper for Jesus' followers because greed is just an inordinate craving for money, for material things. I've got to have more money in the account. I've got to have a bigger house. I've got to have a nicer car. It's, it's inordinate. It doesn't make sense for the Christ follower because, like we said, you already have everything you need in Christ. And if we're going to accurately reflect to the world around us that I have everything that I need in Christ, then we cannot. It doesn't make sense for us to live in greed. Now, secondly, the speech, the language we use when we talk to other people really matters because our language reflects our heart. Jesus says this, actually, Luke, Luke chapter 6. He says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so if out of your mouth come uh, swearing, if out of your mouth comes a dirty language or, or coarse joking, you need to realize that's actually coming from your heart. But we want Jesus to cleanse our hearts. We want him to change our hearts, from the, our lives from the inside out. We want to reflect him to those around us. Let me just be real for a second. I actually think we've kind of lost sight of this biblical teaching in the American church in the 21st century. If you read the New Testament, the New Testament is actually quite serious about language because your words are either going to reflect that A, you're just like everybody else in the culture, or B, that your heart has been changed by something, by someone more important than being like everybody else in the culture. And then thirdly, Paul says that it's improper for those who represent Jesus to engage in even a hint, he says, of sexual immorality. Now that phrase, of sexual immorality, which actually comes up a lot in the New Testament, actually comes from one Greek word, and the Greek word is pornea, which is the root meaning of our modern uh, word, where the, our modern word pornography comes from. Uh, so whenever you see pornea, or where you would read sexual immorality, uh, what it means is it's, it's sort of a broad category of sexual sin. It basically means any form of sex outside of heterosexual marriage, which we're to avoid as Christians. And all of that, outside of that, is what we would call sexual immorality. And we're going to get into this a bit deeper next week in Ephesians because Paul's going to start talking about marriage. So we're going to talk about that next week uh, in church. But Paul is saying this in part here even because earthly marriage is meant to reflect the marriage that we have with our creator, with Christ. 
It's meant to be a relationship where there is unconditional love, where there's a bond that can never be broken. And sex is a beautiful gift within that earthly covenant of marriage. See, sex is a symbol of opening yourself up to that other person in, in vulnerability and in trust. You're giving yourself to that other person, saying, I'm completely yours, and I'm only yours. That's the symbol of it. But when we have sex outside of marriage, again, it's improper because sex outside of marriage doesn't reflect, it can't reflect God's never-ending covenant like it does within marriage. And so while we're here, because I think we think about this subject a lot, we don't talk about it enough probably in church, let me just, before we move on, let me just give you three very quick reasons on why you should trust your loving father and his teaching about sex over the cultures. Just really quickly, here we go, let's go through these three. Uh, Number one, married people not only have more sex, but more fulfilling sex. Okay, I'm sure this uh, primarily uh, for the teenagers in the room, for the young adults in the room, you're not going to hear this much in the media or on social media, but if you do the research on this, almost every major study out there says this. Number two, do not trust what the culture says on sex because the culture changes its mind on sex about every 10 seconds. That might be generous. It could be eight or nine, right? And so making your life decisions on what the current flavor or teaching is about sex in the culture is going to be incredibly disorienting on your life. Here's another reason why I think you should trust the word of God and not the culture. Number three, the Bible's view of your body is infinitely higher, is infinitely better than the cultures. I heard the, the late, great uh, Timothy Keller uh, say once, you know, he was a pastor in New York City, and so uh, people would always come up to him and say, you know, I, I can't be a Christian, I can't follow Christianity, precisely because Christianity in the Bible is so negative on sex. That's what, that's what they would say. And they would say, it just it has so many rules and regulations. And Keller would always give the same response. He would say, okay, think of it this way. If you were the owner of, an, let's say, an art museum, And let's say someone came up to you and they offered to loan you the Mona Lisa for two months. He said, would you say, well, I don't want to be all negative and have all of these rules and regulations about it. And so while Lisa is here, uh, you know, people can do whatever they want to it. He said, no way, you would never say that in a million years. You'd have all sorts of rules and regulations for the Mona Lisa precisely because it is so incredibly valuable. And see, to me, I think this is actually one of the more glaring failures of current American secular thought. Culture has devalued your body. Like your body is just a bag of bones walking around needing to be satisfied. But God says, that's not who you are and that's not what your body is. God says, you are my prized work of art. And so I've set rules and regulations around this in place because I want you to be cherished. I want you to be loved. I want you to be taken care of within a bond that will never break. Precisely because you are so worthy to me. 
See, this is where I think finding the why is really important if we're going to be good-thinking Christians, right? And the church in America, we're not always that good at this, right? Sometimes we just say, don't, 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 don't. And it may be true, but we've got to understand the why, right? The why matters. Okay, let's look for a third reason on why we live differently. So let's go, we're in uh, verse 8 now. So let's open up the word again. Verse 8. Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay. There's a third reason that we're given in here on why we we live quite differently as Christians, and it's this. Number three, because God has brought us from darkness to light. Okay, so theologically, what we learn in the Bible is when when you get saved, God rescues you from your sin. You are essentially on a walkway to hell, and your faith plucks you off of that. Colossians says that he takes you out of the dominion of darkness, and he puts you into his kingdom of light. And that ought to change how we live. I think of Harriet Tubman, who I always loved, uh, even, even as a kid. You know, Harriet Tubman, uh, if your history is a little foggy, she was a, a sl- former slave who rescued so many slaves uh, out of slavery. And if you're imagining, when she brought these former slaves into the north, and they're crossing into the line of freedom, right, it would be unthinkable for that slave to say, as my first act of freedom, I want to go back to the darkness, No way. And as Christians, we live differently, no longer as slaves to sin, because we are now children of the light. Here's another way to think about this. Okay, imagine for me uh, that you're in like a huge room, maybe about the size of this room, and let's say uh, it's completely dark, and there are a hundred people in the room and lots of objects, and if that were the case, how would people be walking around in the darkness, right? You, you, I mean, you'd be very timid. You'd be lots of things. You'd walk around all, all funny, right? But let's say you are the only person in the room through some sort of miracle that can see like the lights are fully on. You're a child of the light in the darkness. If that were the case, would you walk differently than everybody else? Yes, right? And would they think you are weird by the way that you walk? Yes, but you're different. You're a child of light, not a child of the darkness. And as a child of light, Paul tells us in verse 11, you are to have nothing, nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. It reminds me of a story I heard, it was maybe a year ago, of uh, Frederick Charrington. Uh, Frederick Charrington, this was a a while ago in England. He was an heir to a fortune, uh, and Charrington's a business, the family business, was brewing. Well, when Charrington was 19 years old, uh, he became a born-again Christian, just a passionate follower of Jesus. Well, one day, not too long after, he was uh, going along in England, and he came by a, a tavern, a pub, and as he was going by, he noticed there was this dispute going on, and there was this impoverished woman. She was there at the, outside the bar, essentially, with her little kids, and her drunk husband had come out, And they were having this conversation, and she was trying to just get them to stop drinking and give them some money, instead of using it on alcohol, give them some money so the kids could eat. 
and they're having this very loud dispute, and the husband, right, to our shock, knocks down his wife to the ground. And Charrington goes over to help, and he gets knocked down to the ground. And he said, in the most transformative moment of his life, as he was getting up from the ground, he looked up, and right over in the name of the tavern, he saw his own family name lit up on there, Charrington. And he said, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, this, this is the source of my family's wealth. Like, I'm literally getting rich off of this untold misery. And like Paul in Ephesians 5, he said, I, I, I can have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. So he went and told his family, he said, I just can't. As a child of the light, I just can't, I can't be a part of this anymore. And he walked away from what would be in modern times roughly $150 million dollars. Because he knew he had to live differently. And I think this is a fair question for every Christ follower in this room. If you are to have, as a child of the light, nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, where is it in your life that you are complicit with the darkness? And you are partnering in some way. But Paul says, you can't. you just got to be different. You've got to live as a child of the light. And before we move to the next section, I, w- I want to say one more thing. If you are stuck in some sort of dark sin right now. Now, a room this size, there may be a few of you that I'm talking to right now. I want to urge you, as a teacher of the word of God, I want, you, I want to urge you to heed the word of God's warning in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Jesus tells you in Luke chapter 8 that everything we conceal, even our secret sins, will eventually be brought out into the open. This is the stern warning of the word of God. And so I urge you right now, whatever that is in your life, to today, not tomorrow, not a year from now, to today, repent, to walk away, to confess before it gets worse and before it becomes public for everybody's eyes in the light. Walk away now and trust that God's ways, they're harder, but they are so much better for you. Trust, 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 trust in Jesus, okay? Okay, let's read the final five verses. We're on verse 15. So Paul says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're given a fourth reason now on why it's so important that we live differently right now. And that's this, number four, because time is short. Time is short. Okay, this was verse 16. We're to make the most of every single opportunity because the days are evil. Sin is ever-present, and it is deceiving the masses around us right now, and it's deceiving them into hell for eternal suffering. And if we do nothing, right, and we just live just like everybody else, then how is anyone ever 
going to be saved. And so don't, as verse 18 says, don't waste your life getting drunk on wine every night after work or beer or mixed drinks or whatever. God has such a better mission for you, my friend. What he's saying is don't be filled with alcohol. He's saying fill your life with the Spirit, right? Some of us, that's what we run to like every night. And, and we've, we've talked about alcohol a lot in, in the last couple of months. We, we, there's nothing inherently wrong just in having a drink. But for a lot of us, what are we filling our pain with or hard times with? It's alcohol. It's saying don't be filled with alcohol. Be filled with the Spirit. Start living for something different again. Start living for eternity again. Be willing to live differently. As my dear friend uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, uh, he said this, we're not actually friends. He's been dead for a long time. Um, yeah, in my mind, we are. What are we sent into the world for? Is it not that we may keep men in mind of God, whom they are most anxious to forget? If we are imitators of God as dear children, they will be compelled to recollect that there is a God, for they will see his character reflected in ours. I've heard of an atheist who said he could get over every Christian argument except the example of his godly mother. He could never answer that. And listen, if you live like this, if you live like the Bible says, you may feel like you are sticking out like such a sore thumb in our culture. But I would say it's the fact that you stick out that people are going to take notice of you. And that gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with them, to share the good news of Jesus with them, which you must, by the way. Because if you start obeying the Bible in this and you're living differently, but you never say anything, which is, by the way, what a lot of us as Christians do, we're like, I'm going to obey this, I'm going to live differently, but then we never share the gospel. If you do that, you live differently, but you never share, you've actually made things worse. You've made things worse because now they look at you and they just actually, they think you're kind of stuck up. Or they've misread Christianity from you. They think, oh, well, he's, he never swears, he never, never does this, he never. They think that Christianity is just, if you're a really good person, then God will love you and bring you to heaven. No, no, no. Biblically, what we need to do is we need to live different lives, very different lives. And then when people begin to ask us questions, we begin to share the gospel with them. We say, hey, it's not because I'm good that God accepts me. The more you get to know me, you'll see I'm actually kind of messy. But he loves me anyway, and I'm so in awe of that that I'm willing to live my whole life differently for him. That is biblical Christianity. 